Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Today we're going to be talking about wrestling with debt. Well, when our listeners need to save some money, what do they need to do? Listen, stop asking them fool questions. He ain't got the answer today, baby. Take it from the second most recognizable athlete in the world today. Savewithbruce.com can be beat. They lower your monthly payments by five, four, six, eight, seven hundred dollars a month, baby. You got credit card debt? car loan, a second mortgage, there ain't no problem right here at SaveWithBruce.com. Punk here gonna take care of you today. You understand me, baby? Ooh, yeah, we don't need perfect credit, uh-huh. Even with credit scores in the 500, SaveWithBruce.com makes saving money easy. Dig it? NMLS number 65084 Equal Housing Lender. Welcome to WHW Monday. Tony Schiavone and Conrad Thompson talking about the great years of World Championship Wrestling, the NWA, and Jim Crockett Promotions. And now let's go to the ring. Here's your co-host. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to what happened when Monday right here on the MLW radio network and our master of ceremonies, Mr. Tony Schiavone, Tony, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, Hey Conrad and Hey, Hey slap dicks all around the world. It's good to talk to you again for another week of what happened when, as Conrad would say, I like how you emphasize that. Well, what yeah, happened when I'm trying some things, I'm trying some yeah. things and it's, we it's are good too. Stuff. Yeah. We, uh, this is a more fun show for us. I know that. Uh, it came down to the wire and I've got to admit, I almost pulled a Tony Schiavone. I thought for sure that, uh, bash at the beach 97 had won. And I started watching it and taking notes when someone tweeted me a question about fall brawl. And I'm like, 
well, who the hell cares? I'm not even talking about that. And then I thought, you know what? I don't want to Shivani myself. Let me go check the poll. <laughs> and it came down to 1%. And so by 35 to 34% margin, a 1% difference, we're going to be covering fall brawl 1997. But before we get there, we have been teasing a pretty big announcement this week. And, uh, I feel like it's time to smarten everybody up. We've got some great news. You just tried, you know, my little emphasis on what happened when, well, what happened when Tony Schiavone did his first live podcast? How about that? Astounding. How about that? And it's coming up, isn't it? Conrad, it is I mean, it's coming up. this summer we are going to be going live. It's not only me. It's going to be my good longtime, close personal friend, at least since January, Conrad Thompson. <laughs> And we are going to be going live with our What Happened When podcast. We're going to be in Dallas, Texas, Sunday, July 9th. It's going to be the day of Great Balls of Fire, the WWE pay-per-view in Dallas. And this is going to happen at three links on Elm Street in Dallas, Texas. Tickets are not on sale yet. They will go on sale next week. And we'll be talking more about that next week, how you can get tickets. I'm just flabbergasted, flummoxed. I think as Dusty Rhodes once said about all this, and I'm really excited to go back to one of the great cities in the in the country, Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas, the city that is responsible for killing Jim Crockett Promotions. We're coming back, and this time we're going to kill the town ourselves. It's, uh, yes, we are. <laughs> three links right there in Dallas, and you've got plenty of time to come check us out and then cruise on over and see the pay-per-view Great Balls of Fire that the WWE is putting on. This was kind of a last-minute ad for the WWE, so it's a last-minute ad for us, but we're tickled to be there. Uh, I love Dallas. I know we're going to have a great time. We're doing things a little different. Uh, Everybody's going to get the VIP treatment on this. We're going to have more details for you on next week's episode. The tickets go on sale at 10 a.m. Dallas time. That's Central Standard Time next Monday. Tune in to our show next week. And we'll give you the URL you need to type in and snatch those tickets up. But Tony Schiavone, Conrad Thompson, what happened when? We're doing it right, right there in Dallas on July 9th. It's going to be a 1 o'clock show. It is all ages. Now, I don't know why you'd want to bring your kids. You must be one slapdick of a dad if you think that's okay. Uh, But technically, it's not a bar. You can bring your children, uh, but they'll need therapy after. But it's happening. 1 o'clock, July 9th, three links in Dallas, Texas, We'd love to see you. We're going to have a great time. Uh, if you haven't been to one of these type of shows before, uh, it's probably unlike anything that you've done before. I, I say that, but we haven't done one of these. But what Tony and I have planned here, um, no one's ever done anything this ridiculous <laughs> before. So we're going to have fun. We want to see you there. It's July 9th. Uh, so tune in next week for more details, Dallas. We're coming to see you. But we've also got something kind of fun that we want to talk about now. And I feel like a lot of people have maybe missed this, Tony. So we should just spell it out plainly. We're doing one pay-per-view per year in order. I thought by now everybody probably caught on to that, but we started with 88 and now we've kind of went every year since, and we're covering one pay-per-view per year. So 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, we're up to 97. Now we're going to see this all the way through. So in the next few weeks, you'll see one pay-per-view from 98, and then the week after that, 99, then 2000, then 2001. But I know what you're thinking. A lot of you have been pretty vocal about it. We want more Jim Crockett. Well, we got what you're looking for. We're doing it, and we're not putting a poll up for it. It's going to be on Monday, June 19th. We are doing the Four Horsemen episode. It's the one everybody wants to hear about, probably the greatest faction in the history of professional wrestling 
and we're going back to the beginning. Today's episode kind of covers the end of the four horsemen. Uh, and Kevin Nash even proclaims that at the end of the show, it's the death of the four horsemen, but we're going to do something a little different and we're going to bookend it. So June 19th, we're going back to the very beginning and we're doing this in conjunction with the brand new four horsemen book. If you haven't heard about this, that's what everybody's going to be talking about. It's written by our great friend, Mr. Dick Bourne over at the mid Atlantic gateway. It's not on sale yet, but we are announcing it here right now for the very first time. And our listeners will have a chance to pre-order it before anyone else. But what's better than buying the book? Winning it. Well, now you can win it before you can buy it. Just cruise over to facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. Go ahead and like that page and then share the post about the Four Horsemen book you'll see right there at the top of the page. That's it. Share it and you're entered. And then next week we will announce a winner and someone is going to get the brand new Four Horsemen book before you can actually buy it. Uh, now, anything Dick Bourne is involved in is going to be thorough. So if you're not sure, are you getting a lot of detail? Yes, you are. If you're not familiar with Dick, he's done books on the old NWA titles, the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, and more. He is Mr. Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, if you are a fan of the Mid-Atlantic Territory, the midatlanticgateway.com is the site that gets it right, and they're doing this book. Uh, it's the brand-new Four Horsemen book. So win it before you can buy it. All you've got to do, cruise over to facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday right now. And in the coming weeks, we're going to give you the link on how you can pre-order it. And you'll have that book, hopefully, in your hand by the time we do our brand new Four Horsemen episode on Monday, June 19th. Tony, the Four Horsemen, greatest faction of all time. Wouldn't you agree? Well, the greatest faction of my career, I don't think there's any question. I, uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I feel, uh. Arn Anderson claimed that I named the four horsemen. I, I didn't name them. I think either Arn or Ole named them, but I did react to when they first mentioned it on TBS, I did look at Arn and say, you just named them right there. So, uh, I was a, kind of a part of that. And I, and I feel so, uh, excited about being a part of that. And I feel excited about Dick Bourne's book and, uh, yeah, greatest faction ever. Now the faction that we're going to be talking about today uh, was not part of what I consider the greatest faction ever, because I thought, you know, with Arn Anderson's injury and his retirement, and of course with Barry Windham gone, uh, that uh, that uh, it it had kind of got watered down. Yeah, it's they not, kept no, they kept putting people in just for the sake of keeping the Four Horsemen name. But the original Four Horsemen, to me, of course, and we'll talk about this on the 19th, but were the, the, the ones that were Ole and Arn and Rick and Tully, those were the four horsemen with JJ to me. So yeah, I, it's, it was a great faction. Uh, they ruled wrestling ruled WCW and Hey, I was right there at ringside, man. So to speak, all right, there holding the microphone. And uh, you're going to be able to uh, hear a live play by play of all things horsemen. Uh, it's Monday, June 19th, our biggest show ever. And, uh, we want you to go ahead and get in on this and have all the details. So go right now, facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday, like the page and then share that post. And you're going to be able to win this book before you can buy it. I got my copy this last week, did a little traveling over the weekend, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and you're going to get one of these advanced copies too. win it before you can buy it. You know, that's what everybody likes. They like getting something they're not supposed to get. How about a book that's not even been sent to the publisher yet? Roll tight on that. Go to facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday. Uh, let's talk about fall brawl, man. Before we get started, I guess we should give a little bit of background. Uh, you just referenced the Arn Anderson retirement that happened on August 25th, 1997. Arn retired on air 
It was a phenomenal segment, one of the the better, more memorable segments on 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 Nitro. And you see in the background, uh, Ric Flair visibly upset as Arn gives his spot, and they make a big emphasis on that's what Arn has left of his wrestling career is his spot in the Four Horsemen, and he asked Kurt Henning to join the Horsemen. Uh, it was written about very very fondly in the Observer. Uh, this announcement happened in Columbia, South Carolina, and it was one of those real moments in wrestling. Tony, you were there. What did you think of this Arn Anderson in-ring retirement? I thought it was uh, spectacular. I thought that Arn Anderson uh, was and will go down as one of the great interviewers of all time. And not only that, will go down as one of the great uh, characters in wrestling and one of the great minds in wrestling. I think that's being proven today. He works behind the scenes with the WWE. But more than that, Arn Anderson and I have always been very, very good friends. We hung out together. I hope none of those stories are in Dick Bourne's book, but we hung out together years and years ago, um, back when I was silly enough to hang out with the Four Horsemen. We became very good friends. We still stay in touch uh, today, although not as much as I like. He has come to Charlotte. He lives in Charlotte. He comes to baseball games when we're playing the Charlotte team. And I get him some tickets and he'll come up and see me. I thought this was spectacular. I I thought it was spectacular, but it was also sad. And I had known for a long time of his, his neck injuries. I had had neck surgery in 95. Uh, and I know that he had had uh, neck problems as well. And we had talked to both of us about how neither of us can really sleep comfortably at night. And it will be that way for the rest of our lives. Uh, he had taken some uh, spectacular bumps in his day. He, He was a throwback to old school wrestling. So you're never going to hear me speak ill of Arn Anderson, but this interview to me kind of really summed up his career. Uh, but again, it was another one in the line of great interviews of Arn Anderson. I don't know how much you know of Arn in the, in, uh, in real life. I, maybe, I, maybe the funniest guy ever. He has ever. the driest sense of humor and, and the quickest wit of maybe anybody, uh, in wrestling that I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Uh, he could not be more gracious to me, but super funny and will deliver deadpan one-liners that he doesn't sell facially. And so you have to look and be like, did he really say what I think he just said? And then it kicks in. It's almost like a delay. Like your brain is on a seven second delay because you're like, wait a minute. His demeanor does not match what he just said. Is that what he just said? Yes, it is. Yeah. One time he told me. Uh, and Bruce Pritchard may not remember this, but it was Bruce and I with, with Arn out uh, when, in my year in the WWE. And Arn Anderson, we were all drinking. He looks at me. He said, let me ask you something. I said, what? He said, why every time I go to take the shower, does my wife come in and take a shit? <laughs> and Bruce and I looked at each other. <laughs> and I said, I, I don't know. He said, that didn't happen in your house. They'll just come down and lay these little peas down and then they'll leave. They don't take a shit like a real man. He looked around, took a swig of beer and walked away. And Bruce and I were like almost on the floor. Now I can't deliver it the way he can, but that's the kind of humor that he had. So he was spectacular, remarkable. You know, I don't know that his lovely wife, Aaron wanted us talking about her taking a shit on the podcast, <laughs> but since we, well, <laughs> since we've done, it, <laughs> we did it, Aaron, we love you. Oh gosh. And how about this? I know for sure their son listens. So he just heard all about his mom. Come on. But hey, it's fine. No big deal. Everybody has been married a long time. Like he has. 
has had the opportunity to be taking a shower and all of a sudden there's someone on the commode and it's your wife. You're thinking, what? I'm, I'm trying to take a shower here. Okay. No, I'm not. So I'm it's not, not, happened every time. So Arn would just, would just take these everyday things that happen in life and make, and make fun out of them, make jokes. And I've got an Arn Anderson story, uh, that I do want to tell, but if, if, if you'll, uh, if we'll go along here, I'll, I'll tell a little bit later. Okay. No, and no, 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 no. we got time right now. <laughs> I play the hits, man. If you've got a good Arn Anderson story, let's hear it. Well, maybe that I know that his son is listening. I shouldn't tell it. I, I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll get, I'll do one. If you do one. Okay. You first. Uh, we were in Chicago and it was after an event and I cannot tell you what event it was. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a pay-per-view it was back in the Crockett era. And we were, as we would always go on rush street and hang out and drink. And Arn was up against the wall drinking. They had these little ledges that came out from the wall where you could sit down and you drink. And he was drinking, and I was talking to him, and all of a sudden he went out cold. Now his feet went out, boom, and he hit the floor, kaboom. So there was Arn Anderson, the enforcer, who in his heyday was a big, big, big guy. He still is. And he was out on the floor of the bar, and there was David Crockett with me and I said, David, we got to do something about our buddy here. So David and I got him up and dragged him to a cab almost the same way that I guess that Jeff Hardy was dragged to, to the uh, gorilla position for stings match in oh my, TNA oh with gosh. his, with his feet dragging on the floor. Okay. So David went, we went to the Marriott somewhere in, in Chicago and David, uh, went to the front desk and I held up Arn Anderson at, behind a plant so they wouldn't see how drunk he was. Okay. <laughs> That's phenomenal. So, so, so David and I took him, got him, staggered him, drug him to the hook, to the uh, elevator, went upstairs to his room. This is like, opened, this is like weekend at Bernie's right now. Yes, Just, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We have, we have the enforcer who right now is a dead body. Okay. We open up the hotel room, literally do this. I, we open up the door, prop the door open and throw him in the bed and close the door and leave. All right. So the next day as Arn Anderson tells the story, he wakes up in a hotel room. He doesn't know where the hell he is. He has no idea what's going on. So the only person he knows to call is Bruce MacArthur. The general as Ric Flair would call him. He was a friend of everybody's and, you know, had a lot of money, kind of ran the town, so to speak, he called, he called his office and he said, put the general on. And she said, I'm sorry. He's in the media. He said, I don't give a shit. I'm in a room. I don't know where the fuck I am. Tell him it's double a. So MacArthur came to the phone. They had to get somebody go get him because we literally put him in the room and there was no way. I guess we should have left a note. Hey, Arn, you're at the Marriott. You passed out, whatever. But he, <laughs> he woke up in the room, not knowing where he was. And really panic. So there's my weekend at Bernie's Arn Anderson story. I was a part of that. I was physically a part of that with, with Arn Anderson. That's going to be hard to beat. Yeah. So he, you know, again, he makes jokes out of it. He makes light of it, which is great because he would always, you know, talk, uh, yeah, you need to hear him tell this story because it's one of the great Arn Anderson stories, really. When he woke up in that room, in the Marriott, having no idea where he was and calling the general out of a big meeting. Uh, at the company to make sure he had somebody come pick him up. Phenomenal. Yep. So, so you got one? Uh, yeah, we'll get to it in a little bit. Oh, for shit. 
let's talk about this uh, this retirement. Um, Arn Anderson, obviously one of our favorite wrestlers here on the show. And if if you're a younger fan and you're not all the way in the loop on the greatness that is Arn Anderson, I encourage you to go watch some mid to late '80s Arn Anderson matches and promos, and just watch them again, maybe for the very first time. And instead of just watching the match, instead of just watching the program, really focus on Arn Anderson, and you'll appreciate why so many of the boys look up to him and respect his opinion uh, and his ability that he had then. And certainly that he has now from a mental standpoint and all of his contributions there, but you knew this angle was coming. Uh, he started wrestling less and less towards the end of 96, 97. He wasn't nearly as active as he had been in prior years. So August 25th at Kurt Henning, we've talked about a few times on the show that there had been discussions of trying to bring him in and make him a horseman, even back at the time when he was with the WWF and on a Lloyd's of London deal where he wasn't wrestling. So when did you know, Hey, this is the way they're going. Did you know the day of a week out, a month out, kind of peek behind the curtain of what the long-term booking looked like for an angle like this, the long-term booking, I looked about for me, it looked about a week out knowing that they were going to, that they were going to, uh, have this angle play out. Uh, I, uh, again, I was, and even if the, you see the credits that roll at the end of that, I was an executive producer, but not really involved in the booking committee that much, but I knew about a week out from it happening that this was going to go down. Now backstage at this show, um, Kevin Sullivan had returned. He had been off for a little bit with some personal stuff, but he's backstage now and Meltzer would report kind of equal power with Terry Taylor. So Meltzer says he wasn't really sure where they were going next with this. And he, he says, I don't even want to speculate. So when you saw this segment and them kind of giving Kurt the spot and him accepting, did you already know what the payoff was going to be? I did not. So as far as you knew, Arn was going to assume kind of the JJ Dillon role of the group, at least on screen. And then Kurt would step in into Arn's spot and the horseman would continue. That's right. Uh, again, because as we said at the top of the show, uh, they, they tried to continue the horseman and make the horseman viable. And, uh, again, I thought it gotten watered down when, and I, I don't want to slight Kurt Hennig, who's one of the great performers of, of our era. Uh, but, but still, you know, Mon- Mongo in the Four Horsemen, Kurt Hennig in the Four Horsemen, and another wonderful performer in the Wolverine, Chris Benoit, uh, were not Flair, Arn Tully, J.J., and Barry Windham, or before then, Ole Anderson. No, it certainly feels a lot different, and there's been lots of criticism of Mongo being a horseman, uh, but Flair endorsed him in a big way and says that what he, maybe he lacked in ring, he more than made up for out of ring as far as the horseman lifestyle and persona and the way he carried himself. Uh, and he was a legit badass. Nobody's arguing that. But right. ma- but maybe not the in ring worker, you know, that Barry Windham or, or Tully Blanchard were. Uh, and this isn't really Kurt Henning at his peak. You know, Kurt, 10 years prior to this, was probably one of the best wrestlers in the entire country. Uh, and at this point he's had some injuries he's beat up. He's not nearly where he was before, but you could say that about, you know, pretty much everybody in the horseman at that point. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the next week though, because this is where the controversy comes in. So one week after this, uh, as Ric Flair says, a real moment in professional wrestling, 
uh, where, you know, there's lots of stuff in wrestling that you look at and you say, oh, that's all to put on, uh, Arn giving up his horseman spot felt like a pretty emotional, real deal. And it made for great television. And the next week they dedicate nitro to the greatness that is Arn Anderson. They show a lot of clips and are really kind of highlighting the career and the contributions to the company that Arn had made. But meanwhile, the NWO had a skit planned. And in this skit, we see Conan dressed as Mongo. We see Buff dressed as Kurt. We see Ric Flair portrayed by six, Sean Waltman, one, two, three kid. And then we see Kevin Nash and full on makeup carrying a styrofoam cooler and a stuffed shirt to make him look heavy set. Um, and they disparage and mock the segment a week before. And there's been lots of talk and, and you were, you were there. Yeah. I want to know the stories are they got Arn's okay. And that Arn was okay with it. The story was that, um, Arn phoned home. His wife and children were upset, especially about the drinking part. They feel like that maybe was a little out of bounds or got more emphasis than what was originally discussed. Uh, Kevin Nash would say, that's not true. That was Arn's actual cooler. And Arn was okay with it because that was his legit cooler. And Ric Flair says that the idea was Terry Taylor's. You were there. What say you? I say... I'm not so sure whose idea it was from the booking committee, but I say it did not humiliate the horseman. I, I thought it was, I thought it was a very entertaining wrestling angle. And I say that being a friend of Arn Anderson and Rick Flair's. And I say that from being right there at the beginning of the horseman, that it was funny. I had heard, I had heard that Arn and Rick were upset. That's what I had heard. And then I remember thinking, what the hell guys, it's wrestling. It's the NWO. They make fun of everything. They're jerks. That's what they are, and that's how they portray it. They would, if you look at what's going on logically in the the life of the NWO, they would make fun of all this. This is what they would do. So I was surprised when I heard some negative about it. I didn't hear that about Arn's family being upset about it. I heard Arn and Flair were upset about it. So allegedly, the original plan... Uh, and again, this is some speculation and rumor and innuendo from the dirt sheets after the fact, but allegedly it was worked in to where during this parody, the horsemen do a run in as we've seen before. And then there's a big brawl and they throw to commercial and this teases, you know, the only way to settle this is inside of a cage, but allegedly Bischoff goes to Terry Taylor and nixes that run in and says, Hey, we don't have time. Just cut that. Yep. So now instead of there being a big payoff and Hey, them's fighting words and, and all that, the horsemen just sit in the back, like a bunch of fucking goofs, uh, as they, as they mock it. And then they go to commercial and nothing happens. And supposedly right. this is what flares upset about saying, Hey, it's no problem if you go do that, but we, we've got to get our heat back and we've got to come in and defend ourselves. So allegedly when they ask flair to go out later and do an interview, he just refuses and says, I can't salvage that. If I can't come out and, and stop them from doing it, what am I going to go say on the microphone now? That's going to make that all better. So he just doesn't come out. Do you, right. re do you remember that piece? of Yeah, business? I do remember that. And I thought that was just flair being a part of, of being upset about the angle. I, I didn't realize it was because the run-in was next, 
but I can see the run-in being nixed because, again, a lot of times things ran over and we were flying by the seat of our pants a lot of times. And, you know, we would try back then during the wars to hit the quarter hours to where something was happening. So if, if this skit ran longer than it should have, I can see Eric Nixon it because of time, which in hindsight is obviously the wrong thing to do. Another thing is, though, if, if Arn was really, was really the brunt of this joke or the brunt of this skit, because Kevin Nash, to me, I thought, again, I was, I was kind of quote unquote rolling in the aisles because I know Arn and, and I thought Kevin was a hilarious, uh, in this, in, unless Arn can do a run in, which he couldn't do, I don't know how much a run in would have worked. And, and that's just me again. Armchair quarterback, freestyling here, okay? Well, um, allegedly, this results in a confrontation after the show uh, or after the segment, depending on who you believe, where Arn kind of confronts Kevin Sullivan once he's talked to his wife at home and realizes everybody's upset about the way he was portrayed. And the idea being not the whole average carpenter's heels, blah, blah, blah jokes, but the idea that he's essentially just a drunk. And he didn't want that out there, which is probably why Tony was so proud to talk about him hiding behind a plant weekend at Burning Style <laughs> a minute ago. <laughs> He's going to be fucking tickled with us. Um, oh, oh, I've got suckered into this. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, All right. I'm going to defend it right here and say, do you think Arn Anderson was the only one that got drunk? No, listen, we're, we're just, this is tongue in cheek. <laughs> okay, Everybody okay. understands if you're going to be friends with Ric Flair, you're going yeah. to be talked into drinking to, into excess a time or two. Yes. You, you, you have on this very show talked about how Rick got you so drunk once you threw up in the tub, you know, yeah. it's, it's just a rite of passage of hanging with the nature boy. You're going <laughs> to overdo it once or twice. You may okay. even get so drunk. You pee your pants. It happens. Okay. I'm Thank not you. saying that somebody on this call right now has done that. I'm just saying in, in theory, that could wow. happen okay. allegedly. Um, did you have a change of pants that night? Yeah, we were, we were out of town. I mean, no, it wasn't me. Uh, so, <laughs> well, I'm the one that threw up in the tub. Yeah. Well, somebody, so peed. you have to be the one to pee your pants. I, I okay. I'm not saying it was me. There's just, only two of us here. Roll tide. Uh, Meltzer would write, uh, the heat between the horsemen and the NWO is legit to a point that it's silly. Because of the clash on August 21st, there was a bomb threat called into Nashville during the flare match. And Nash was joking after the show that Anderson must have called it in because they wanted management to think somebody actually cared about flare. And there's a major level of discomfort as of late in the dressing room regarding people trying to take credit for all of the recent success. Do you remember there being any sort of heat with uh, cause I know clicky stuff existed in the locker room at this time. do you remember there being some sort of weird animosity between Kevin Nash and his buddies and the flair Anderson contingent? Yeah, I, I remember that because I, I think we all knew, uh, I mean, th there could have been some professional jealousy because let's face it, uh, with Hogan coming to WCW and then with Hall and Nash coming to WCW. We were obviously on top and they had a lot to do with that. If not everything to do with that, uh, possibly. Uh, and I remember there being a lot of heat backstage between that. 
and, and again, too, you know, uh, Scott Hall was a big time shit disturber. Oh yeah. And, and he reveled in that. He still does. He, he acknowledges that he would, he would stir stuff up just to keep yeah. it interesting. It was funny to him. Right. Right. He, he was very good at that. Uh, Kurt Hennig was a practical joker that everybody knew about and, and kind of laughed at all the time. Scott Hall was a shit disturber. And I would think that, and, and uh, again, there was a lot of backstage that went on during the show because I was out and doing the matches that I didn't see, but I would think that he would keep the story going and keep the shit disturbed as he would, and we would go along on this show. Larry Zabisco, uh, does a run in and Larry's comments to me that night took me off guard because he called him a coward. You know, Larry always made it seem like everybody was really tough. Right. But when he was talking about Scott, uh, Scott Hall that night, he called him a coward and a chicken. And I remember thinking, and if you listen to it, I kind of reacted like, what, what, what are you talking about here? What, what? I mean, there, there was, to me, there was some genuine heat there. And that to me, hearing what Zabisco had to say, told me that there was genuine heat going on with Scott Hall. And that's kind of when I first heard about it. And then as we went along, I heard there was more. So yeah, there was heat between factions. No question about it. Hall and Nash thought that they were the reason that we were on top. Well, they were. And well, yes, of course they were. Absolutely. They were, um, another part of this skit that maybe gets overlooked a little bit is six doing the Ric Flair impression with the sweater vest and the big crazy nose. And uh -huh. he's got a gimmick where it makes it look like he's constantly crying that kind of comes through his fingers. So there's just water streaming the whole time. kind of mocking yeah. the fact that Flair cries so easily, but there's been tons of promos where Flair would just mention, I've got more world titles than you've got pieces of ass. You know, I may not be able to whip the big man or the, or, or the medium man, but I know I can kick your ass. So there's lots of little, uh, back and forths in the promo time with Rick and Sean Waltman. Do you perceive there as being any real heat or is that just Rick being an entertainer? Uh, I think that's Rick being an entertainer. Uh, there's a thing, as you know, called ribbing on the square that, uh, sometimes they would do that. But I like to think of Ric Flair being a professional about this. This was all make believe, right? right? We know that now. Sure. So if it's all make believe, why do you get upset about it? If someone tries to go a different way and if you do, why can't you sit down man to man and talk it out? So all this stuff to me, like Meltzer said was silly. I just thought it was silly G guys were trying to make money. We're trying to do the best business we can. And damn it, we're doing good business with this NWO angle. Oh, for let sure. them do their, sh let them do their shit. Let them do it. And I'm, I'm an Arn Anderson supporter, a Ric Flair supporter and a friend. Ric Flair got me in this business. And, um, uh, and if I was, if I was not upset about all of this, uh, even with, uh, six crying, which in the nose, which <laughs> it's funny, broke, it broke me up. It did. Sure. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Terry Taylor before we get to the actual pay-per-view. I know some people listening are thinking, are they ever going to talk about the pay-per-view? But this is the, this is the center angle. This is what the whole show's about. Sure. Um, was there any heat on Terry Taylor here? Because politically this seems like it's, um, something that's going to be a little divisive, uh, and maybe it's 
Bischoff and Nash had the idea and they just wanted Terry to take the heat. Or maybe it was a Terry idea, but Bischoff nixes the comeback and kind of cuts the legs out from under it. What do you think in regards to the Terry Taylor situation? Was there any sort of political maneuvering or was this just a good idea and, and this, the segment got cut short? I, I think that's what, it, well, that's what it was to me, that it was a good idea and the segment got cut short. Uh, as far as Terry Taylor is concerned, Terry Taylor throughout history has had heat. He has. Why do you think that is? Terry did. Uh, well, you and I have a device. We don't use it that much during this, during what happens when, but in, in everyday life, you and I have a device in our brain that prevents us from saying what we're thinking. Terry didn't have that. <laughs> Terry never knew when to shut up. Uh, and it wasn't that Terry was, was a mouthy prick or anything like that, but Terry would always say something and never hold back. And if there was something said on the side that wrestler a said about wrestler B, Terry would let, you couldn't tell Terry Taylor that because he didn't know how to shut up. I, Terry and I had plenty of discussions. We had arguments. Terry and I had big time arguments late, uh, in, uh, in WCW. But again, Terry didn't have that device. He didn't know how to shut up. Didn't know how to hold a secret. Didn't know how to stop saying things that were, that were made. I will not say politically incorrect, but that just were better not said. Right. And so he always had heat. And I think, I think, uh, Pretty much anybody who's worked in the business would agree with me on that. Well, he's got heat with uh, Bruce Pritchard. That's for sure. There you go. How about that? Uh, so let's talk about the actual pay-per-view itself. The stage is set now, in case you uh, haven't seen the show in a while. The big payoff here is they're building towards the Horsemen and the NWO inside two steel cages. It's the War Games match. It's finally back. Uh, and we've talked about it a little bit in the past, and I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, in, in a little bit. But... The War Games was kind of a staple from the old Jim Crockett promotions days. The WCW has kept on, uh, but it's in its dying days here, and it's winding down. Uh, this pay-per-view we're covering in particular, Fall Brawl, The War Games, happened on September 14th, 1997 at the Lawrence Joel Coliseum. It's in Winston-Salem, uh, normally a stronghold of the Jim Crockett promotions. Anything in the Carolinas was pretty much a guaranteed sellout in the old Crockett days. Wouldn't you agree, Tony? It was good. It was good business. Winston Salem is 30 miles, 25 miles from Greensboro, which was the top venue for Jim Crockett promotions in the old days. And that's because in the old days, as we say, the eighties, the Lawrence Joe Memorial Coliseum had not yet been built. It was a newer venue. Uh, and this pay-per-view, despite it being the one that killed the town, so to speak, uh, was pretty well received, at least by the readers of the wrestling observer newsletter. It got a 43 I'm sorry, it got 64.2% thumbs up, uh, only 43 votes, uh, 14 thumbs down, which is 20.9%, and 14.9% thumbs in the middle. Now, you just watched this show for the first time in like 20 years, right, Tony? What do you think? Yep. Thumbs up, thumbs down? Where were you? Um, I have a couple of things. I'm going to say overall thumbs up. Uh, the thumbs down, the 20.9% would probably the uh, – the old standby mid-Atlantic horseman people who didn't like that. Uh, I say thumbs up because there were great matches on this from top to bottom. There were great matches. Even the giants 
basically squash match of Scott Norton was well done. Uh, but I'm going to say kind of thumbs in the middle or maybe even thumbs down because to be very honest with you, this to me, and I'm looking at it critically, looking at myself as an announcer and how I developed through the years. I think this is the beginning of me becoming a pretty decent wrestling announcer to an overhyped shill. I don't know how many times watching this, I say, I'm saying to myself, shut the fuck up and let Heenan talk <laughs> or let Zabisco talk or let Mike talk. And I'm just going over the top and overselling things. And we did a lot of these really good matches at the beginning, like Guerrero, the match with Chris Jericho. That was phenomenal. Even, yeah, it was. Alex Wright had a good match with Ultimo Dragon. Yep. The tag team match was good with the Powers of Pain uh, and Wrath and Mortis. And we did those a disservice. Why? Because we kept talking about the war games. Now, I understand where we're going with this, but we had a captive audience. We didn't have to keep selling the war games. Right. They bought the thing. Right. We did not have to push to next week. But we kept selling it and selling it, and then they had the Kurt Angle, I know, and that even moved it uh, forward ahead. But I, uh, I'm going to go back last week when we, uh, yeah. when we did World War Three. I was hoping you were going to address this. Okay, okay, no, I'm, I'm not going to. I know what you're saying, but just let me say this: last week when we did World War Three, I thought we did a good job as announcers, and I thought we got uh, uh, shit on by David Meltzer. Uh, and I, I thought he was wrong. I thought I was horrible in this show and I thought moving forward here, I even got worse. Not going to always blame it on myself, but I do have to say the buck stops here with my announcing, but I was constantly pushed to oversell, to hype it. I, in other words, I was, I was constantly being produced more yeah. as we move forward. Somebody's in your ear telling you to promote yeah, the war right. games, but Either way, though, you were pretty hard on Dave last week, and that was the most talked about thing from last week's episode. Yeah. It's available in the archives. Uh, Dave was very critical of the announcing in World War Three ninety six, and Tony kind of went off, and our great friend, Mr. Matt Coon, who puts together some of the musical stuff that we do here and on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard, he put together something that you have to hear. We're going to play at the very end of this week's show, so... Uh, don't tune out when we start going over poll options, man, hang in there at the very end of the show, we're <laughs> going to play this, but it sounds like you kind of acknowledge that maybe some of what Meltzer says here isn't off base. Maybe it was just out of place for the time. Maybe it was a, a couple of pay-per-views too early. Yeah. Uh, I would think so. Uh, I, uh, I, I did not like my commentary at all on this. I, well, <clears throat> around that time in my life. I was, <laughs> I'm going to say this honestly, and I'm going to say this slowly so it doesn't get misinterpreted. Around that time in my life, I was on speed. Uh, and it was because I had been, <laughs> this is true. I look at you sitting there. You just took a big swig of drink saying, lower it on me. Okay. Because I had been diagnosed, check with Lois on this. I've been diagnosed with ADD, adult ADD. So I went to the doctor. I got diagnosed with adult ADD, and he put me on this drug called Silert, C-Y-L-E-R-T, which is a, a drug like Ritalin, 
only you had to get every month or every three months you had to get liver tests because it would damage the liver. And it would, I would be so, so focused on these shows. And you can ask Mike today this. Mike and I would talk about it, that how focused I've been on these shows because the Silert was working. But later on, I don't know when that was. I said, ah, fuck it. It's not worth all these liver tests and damaging my liver down the road. I'm going to stop taking it. And I really haven't taken it since then. But I, I could tell I was on speed that night because I was hyped up, buddy. This is like an after school special right now. <laughs> I was not ready for, you know, a drug PSA here. Okay. Look, look, I, I'm not, I wasn't abusing drugs. I've never abused drugs. I don't even drink that much. Tony, but you just said you were shooting up speed. <laughs> I, was taking, I was taking a controlled substance silent. If I had to pee in a bottle that night, I would show the guys Here's my uh, prescription. It's got my name on it and it's prescribed. It worked, but it wasn't worth it later down the road. Listen, if you're in Lois Shivani's family, you got to drug up. Hmm. It's Mother's Day, brother. Yeah. Happy Mother's Day. Well, let's talk about this mother of a show. Uh, this All right. Well, anyway, of, the announcing sucked. Well, it always, it, it, it always did if you were there. Um, <laughs> So let's, <laughs> let's talk about this pay-per-view because this seems like a common theme at the time. The WWF kind of was known in 97 for maybe weaker undercards and really strong main events, but you guys seemingly were cranking out really, really strong undercards, but kind of weaker main events. Would you agree with that assessment that many fans have? Yeah, I, I agree with that because the undercard guys could really work. Could uh, really work. Meltzer would write, uh, in this case, the main event that the show was built around war games was among the worst war games ever as a match, but the ending and post-match were among the most dramatic. Uh, obviously we're going to talk about the, the post-match here in just a second, but do you think this is the worst war games ever up until that point? Yeah, I do. Okay. And I, uh, I think it was because of the, uh, it, it was, it was kind of just a big angle is all it was. Uh, and there was no blood. Why have a double cage if you can't bleed for crying out loud? Uh, again, that's kind of an extension of uncensored. Why have uncensored if you can't bleed? Why have war games? Why even have a cage if you can't bleed? And I know that's old school, but again, that's, that's uh, a TBS fucking us over. Uh, but yeah, I think it was the worst one. Uh, Meltzer would be uh, pretty critical of some advertising. Let's get into that. The show drew a sellout of 11,939 folks, uh, 11,024 paid with a gate of $213,330, slightly more than the 1996 war games that was in the same building, which I've always been fascinated by you guys running the same building for pay-per-views like this, yeah. but a much higher gross with the increase in ticket price. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, he did note in the observer and all the WCW print advertising in the market, they listed Hulk Hogan as appearing on the show, which is blatant false advertising because it was known months in advance that he was skipping the show. Why do you think that that would be the case? Meltzer would speculate the general belief as to why the teams in the war games weren't announced until the day before the show is only partly because of lack of organization. It's also because of the way nitro had hyped it. To make people think perhaps Hogan and Sting would be on opposite sides until the announcement 
of the complete lineup was made for team WCW six days before the show. Um, what'd you think of the idea to kind of make fans believe that sting may be in this. And they certainly did think he would appear throughout the show. And especially during the main event, we right. want sting. We want sting. We want sting. He never comes. Nope. Uh, and he, he was there the year before when they did the whole fake sting angle, which I'm sure we'll get into another time, but he's not here this time. And they had certainly not announced who was going to be in the NWO team or the WCW team until right before, because specifically on the NWO side, it kind of feels a little bit like the B team. And I don't mean any disparaging remarks there, but the A team of the NWO had been the outsiders and Hulk Hogan. Well, here we've got Kevin Nash, Conan, Buff Bagwell, and Sean Waltman, all phenomenal performers in their own right, but certainly a notch below with the exception of Kevin Nash of the main event status, uh, that many would have expected. And it's not like these guys worked a lot of other pay-per-view main events. Um, yeah, was, was this deliberate? Do you think, and not announcing who was, who was participating in the match? My gut reaction, it would be WCW being disorganized and the left hand, not doing what the right hand is doing because, you know, back then print advertising had to go out far in advance. Uh, and then when we found out that Hogan was on it, we just probably said, you know what, we got to go with it. Let's do the best we can with it. Um, so I, I don't know if it was underhanded dealing by WCW. I do know that things changed a lot. And when I say things changed a lot, you have no idea how things changed from one day to the other, from one segment to the other things changed. And sometimes you got what you got just because we were so disorganized and someone had a better idea and we went with it. I don't think it was any, uh, underhanded doings by WCW could have been, I just think it was disorganization on our part. Um, what about Hulk Hogan not appearing here? How big of an effect do you think that has on the buy rate? It certainly feels like it. You know, I know yeah. we're going to break it down eventually, but let's go ahead and cover it. Uh, fall brawl gets a 0.53, which translates to 195,000 buys. The month before with Road Wild, which was historically one of the worst shows of the year, it got 240,000. So this is a 45,000 drop. And then the next month, Halloween Havoc, they did 405,000 buys. They wouldn't be back at this 195 level until Slamboree 1999. So this would be the worst that it would be for well over a year. I mean, almost two years. Um, do you, how much of that do you attribute to not announcing the, the participants, a lack of interest in the horsemen maybe? Um, or Hulk Hogan's absence, not interested in the, uh, the participants and Hulk Hogan's absence. Um, look, when I rewatched the show, I remember thinking when Scott Hall came out with macho man, Randy Savage, I remember thinking, how come they're not in the main event? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it feels weird that macho man and Scott Hall aren't in the main event. Um, yeah. And, Conan, and no disrespect, but Conan and Buff Bagwell and six had not been positioned as main event players at that point. 
They had not. Meanwhile, and that's not through no fault of their own. Somebody's going to say we're burying those guys. We're not. Just they hadn't made invented yet, and they get their opportunity here. But the buy rate suffers, and maybe as a as as part of that. Um, let's talk about the actual card. First match on the card was phenomenal. If you haven't seen it already, you should go out of your way to see a very young Chris Jericho take on a very young Eddie Guerrero. They go over seventeen minutes. It was a great opener. Uh, I thought the paper. I thought this was a great way to start the pay per view. Lots of hot moves back and forth. Uh, ultimately, uh, Guerrero would uh, get the win and then capture the WCW Cruiserweight title from Chris Jericho, uh, and Meltzer would rate it three and three quarter stars. I know you're not normally a fan of the Cruiserweights, but I think you mean specifically the Luchadors, where they're masked. Yes, I do. Uh, what did you think of this match? Loved it. Absolutely loved it because I. I love both competitors. They both not only could work a match, and we saw that, but they were both guys who really cared about the business, old school style, uh, and both were, were just tremendous. It was it was one of the better opening matches that we had had on a pay-per-view ever, really, if you think about it. Uh, and it, it was tremendous. No, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I thought it was a phenomenal match. And if you haven't already you know, seen some Chris Jericho from this era, uh, it's good stuff. There were lots of uh, technical snafus in this show, Tony. Uh-huh. The first one I noticed is when Guerrero is coming to the ring, the graphic that appears on screen says he is the Harlem, Harlem Heat. Heat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who would have been in control of handling things like that for WCW? The executive producer is Craig Leathers, and that's him. So, uh, Craig Leathers is in the truck when this is going down or where would yep. he be watching the show? No, he's in the truck. Uh, it seems like stuff like this happened a lot in WCW yeah. and we didn't see this as much with the WWF. Is that because of Kevin Dunn, Vince McMahon or both? Well, it's because of Kevin Dunn and because of a guy named Kerwin selfies. I don't know if you've ever heard of yeah. Kerwin before. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and of course Vince, but, uh, to me, we could not. And we had uh, a guy named Keith Mitchell, yeah, who I know you heard of, who was as good in production as, as anybody. Keith was was kind of like he wasn't. Craig was in charge, okay, and there was no way that Craig Leathers could compete with a Kevin Dunn or Kerwin Selfies. No way he can compete with it at all. So there. Uh, next up, we have got Rick Steiner and Scott Steiner tagging uh to take on the harlem heat and they go about 11 minutes maybe 12 minutes uh when rick finally gets the pin over stevie ray uh this match only gets two and a quarter stars here and this is right before we start to see scott steiner become a single star he's as big as a house uh it's uh it's pre-pop a pump but man he's well on his way um yeah i i turned to was watching uh, some of this with one of my sons, and when Rick, uh, when uh, Scott came came out, I looked, turned to my son and I said, "Looks like someone put an air hose up his ass, doesn't it?" Because he was getting big, and he slicked his hair back, and we're showing the formation of Big Papa Pump, which I think, in reality, when you go back and think about the the Steiners in the early '90s with the Varsity Club jackets, and I, it's to me, that was my favorite Scott Steiner. The the Varsity Club version. 
Well, the, the version where they both came out with, with Michigan jackets. Yeah, absolutely. And Scott had the the mullet or the long hair. Yeah, I didn't, mean, I didn't mean the Kevin Sullivan angle. I just meant you right, know, the, right, the, right. the early 90s version. Yeah. The uh, one that I saw at the Tokyo Dome. Well, everything's better in the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> well, apparently so. Uh, yeah, I was a fan of uh, the Steiner Brothers. They were my favorite tag team as a kid, for sure. Uh, but I, I'm curious about your perception of working with Scott Steiner because he's always kind of been one of those more polarizing guys. The rap on Rick Steiner is that uh, he is uh, cool, laid back, level-headed. The rap on Scott was that he could be uh, difficult to deal with. Uh, you were there. You saw him as a youngster and then the evolution of this Big Papa Pump character. What was your interaction with Scott? My interaction with Scott was, was pretty good and pretty honest. Uh, Scott was a scary guy. Uh, we would do interviews in the back at times. I remember specifically being in Salisbury, Maryland. And Scott kept screwing up the interview backstage, a pre-tape. And I was doing it. And he kept screwing up. And then he would stomp back and forth and back and forth uh, between takes, cursing at himself. Uh, and I remember saying to him, I say, Scotty, shut the fuck up and let's do this thing. And I remember thinking, uh Oh, and he <laughs> laughed at me <laughs> and then he just kind of laughed at me. So he was really kind of a good guy, but he would get into the zone when the lights were on that, uh, were, was really kind of scary, but overall Scott Steiner was a good kid. He really was, uh, it was much more different than Rick. Uh, but he, he was a good kid. How would he you, was. how would you describe Rick? Uh, just kind of like to uh, hang around, take a dip of snuff and smile at everybody. You know, they did some crazy things too. Yeah. They had a reputation for kind of ribbing some guys and, um, maybe taking things a little too far occasionally, Yeah, uh, with some of the guys and Rick has told some, uh, Rick Flair has told some stories about that specifically when they used to kind of, um, you know, the word these days is bully, but they would, they would rib and kind of prank and maybe take it a little too far with right. Butch Reed. And one day, allegedly Rick says he asked Ron Simmons, Hey man, uh, why don't they do that to you? And supposedly <laughs> Ron says I'm unfuckwithable," <laughs> which I think is still one of the greatest lines in the history of wrestling. I'm unfuckwithable. Yeah. Uh, did you see those guys maybe have their way? Time uh -huh. There's a, there's a great story about, and I didn't go on tour in Germany, but there's a great story. We had an announcer, a German announcer. Uh, I think his name was Oliver and it's not Oliver cop who I've seen online, but it's another guy named Oliver and Oliver was kind of obnoxious. And, uh, as the story goes, and I didn't see it, but pretty much it's, it's a, it's a true story. Uh, they got, Oliver got drunk near the end of the, uh, Germany tour. And usually in Germany, something crazy or usually overseas, something crazy would happen. Uh, they, uh, he got drunk that night, passed out. So the Steiners took a Sharpie and marked his face all up, putting swastikas on his face, oh, shaved, his, shaved his eyebrows. Uh, and I think there's another story where, uh, Chip Burnham, who's now passed away, passed away this past year was a promoter of ours. Uh, Chip loved to give the Steiners shit for some unknown reason. And if you gave the Steiners shit a lot, if you got on them, 
they would get on you. And apparently they, they uh, duct taped uh, uh, Chip Burnham's hands behind him and pulled out his pants and stuck a couple of Sharpies up his ass. Uh, that, uh, I'm sure that happened too. So let this be a lesson to you. If you're listening and you're going to an autograph signing, yeah. don't you dare give a Steiner brother a Sharpie. There's yeah. no telling what's going to happen with that thing. Yeah. Uh, another thing, uh, you know, Eric's son, uh, who was uh, backstage a lot, you know, c- kids when they're backstage and my kids were backstage at times too, but Eric's son could be obnoxious as kids could be. And he would always be screwing with the Steiners and they would, they would just, push him around. I mean, like really push him around and laugh about it. And he'd like, you know, like any silly kid, he'd come back. And I remember remember thinking, man, they're getting rough with this kid. They just don't give a shit. So yeah, regardless of who you are, what age you are, leave the Steiners alone. And you know, the, the rib about all of this, what's that? Is that Rick Steiner's a member of the Cherokee County school board? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That's the rib. And, And by the way, um, you know, all our rowdy friends have settled down. They're both really cool guys in 2017. Um, if you have the pleasure to meet one of these guys at a personal oh, yeah. appearance, don't, don't feel weird about making the approach. They're good dudes. Yeah. Again, Scotty Steiner was a great kid. He just, when the tape machines were rolling and he, then when he became big Papa pump, I ain't going to be around anywhere for this shit, buddy. Cause he's crazy. Um, so if you were a wrestler, you wouldn't have wanted to be in the ring with him. During this period, he was a little no. over the edge. No, wouldn't have. If, uh, if you had to be in the ring with a wrestler, who would it be? And why is it Tom Zink? I don't know if it would be so much Tom Zink. Now, as I think about it, uh, it could have been Ray Mysterio jr. Because as I had mentioned last week, once he took the mask off, it was kind of cute. All right. In the next match, we've got Alex Ryan retaining <laughs> the WCW TV title. And he's doing so in a pretty good match with Ultimo Dragon, or Ultimate Dragon, if you're Tony Schiavone. They go 18 minutes and uh, 43 seconds. The match would get three and a half stars in the Observer. Uh, But Meltzer was not done with Tony Schiavone. He wrote, Mm. To prove once again that nothing that goes on in the ring registers with the announcers, after Wright did that move, Schiavone said, Have we ever seen Alex Wright do that? When in fact he's done it dozens of times in WCW. Mike Tanay did explain that it was on pay-per-view and it had an extended time limit for the TV title from the regular 10 or 15 minute television show. Although no one ever actually said how long. Uh, so after you just said, Hey, maybe I went too hard on Meltzer. He's taking you to task again here. what do you think of the match and, uh, any response to these criticisms? Uh, uh, first of all, I think going back to what we said earlier that my work was shitty. Uh, number two is that I probably would have been less criticized by Dave Meltzer had I called him after every fucking event like a lot of guys did. Oh, it's true. It's absolutely true. Mark Madden later on in the years even told me Mark Madden said, you know, it's, it's probably true that if you call Dave and talk to him, he won't be as shitty towards you. And I said, well, let's hear for journalism. Uh, so that's my response to that. And I did call Dave twice, twice throughout my years. And what'd, uh, what'd you call him for? Well, one time I was drunk. I don't know why I ended up calling him. Second time I called him was when I left WWF and came back to WCW. I did not in the dirt sheets want some sort of bullshit rumor floating out there. So I called Dave and said, Dave, I'm leaving. And here's why. And he put it in there exactly as I told him in fairness to him. Uh, 
I'm just curious. Why does one drunk dial Dave Meltzer? I don't know. I was so drunk. I couldn't even tell you. I don't even know how I got the number, well, but I knew I, I knew I was drunk. Did you ever hear what you talked about with him? Cause clearly you don't remember. I don't remember. No, I don't remember twice. I called him. It's amazing. Yeah. Maybe whatever you should've, said, I should have called him more times, right? Well, I'm just wondering if what you said when you were drunk is what pissed him off so bad. And so then he just shit on your <laughs> no. commentary for the rest of your no, career. No, 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 no. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have been like, look, it's human nature. It's human nature. If you're friendly with a guy, he's going to be a little bit more fair to you when he writes or when he talks about you. I understand that, but I didn't like to play that game. I, you know, I, I really, I, I really, there was a part of me back then because of of growing up in it and loving it and being uh, a fan of it and being told by Jimmy Crockett, uh, that, uh, being told by Jimmy Crockett that we, uh, that we respect the business and what you see here stays here. There was a part to me that resented all the dirt sheets and resented, uh, them trying to expose the business. I thought they were exposing the business and I was for that. I was on that school. There was a lot of people that really didn't look at it. They looked at it like Dave Meltzer could help their career. Right. So I was on the other side and therefore a lot of things he said about me. Let me say again about Dave. A lot of things he said about me was right on. A lot of things he said about me was just him being full of shit. Anything you want to talk about uh, with this Alex Wright Ultimo Dragon match? What stuck out to you the most? Any interesting uh, little stories or tidbits you can share about either guy? Uh, I thought Alex Wright was a very handsome young man. Uh, they had a great match. I thought Alex was very, it was vastly over. <laughs> Why'd you go? Mm. I was clearing my throat. I'm sorry. Okay. I thought Alex was uh, vastly underrated as, as a worker. I thought the Berlin gimmick that we went uh, to later did not serve him well. And I think he proved it here. He had, he had a, thought he had a very good match. Very good match. Even though did, uh, uh, I, I didn't see that match. I didn't see that move before. Did you see it before, Mike? Yes, I did, Tony. You dumb shit. Uh, so I thought it was. I thought it was very good. And as we know in the business, uh, Jim Barnett really liked Alex Wright. Hmm. Uh, next up, we see uh, the NWO allegedly attack <laughs> Kurt Henning to injure him, so he will not be able to wrestle in the War Games. This happens backstage. Uh, mean Gene is reacting to this supposed, uh, beat down. And this is almost a carbon copy of an angle they did with Kurt Henning a year prior uh, in the fall of 96. He had, um, a, a situation going with Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Mark Miro for the intercontinental title. And it looked as if Miro had a confidant and someone in his corner and someone he could count on and Kurt, but then they find Kurt laying in the back and assume that it was Hunter who laid him out. It was actually just to put on and Kurt ta-da is actually a bad guy. A year later, here we are. The next yeah. match on the show is uh, Jeff Jarrett. He would wrestle Dean Malenko. They go nearly 15 minutes and the winner here earns a U.S. title shot in Las Vegas. And that would take place the very next month in October at WCW's Halloween Havoc. Uh, to get the match started, Jarrett tells Deborah McMichael to go to the back before the match even gets started. Meltzer would call this another good match and says Malenko got the clover leaf on, but Jarrett made the ropes. Deborah came out at that point after all kinds of near falls and reverses. Malenko was distracted by Deborah and Jarrett clipped him and put on the figure four for the submission. 
one of the rare times in the late nineties that you see a figure four win a match, but it does here, uh, three and a quarter stars, Jarrett going over Malenko. Uh, what were your two favorite things about this match, Tony? Uh, my favorite thing about this match was when Deborah walked in at the beginning and then when Deborah walked in at the end, no, look, I know what you're trying to set me up. Uh, great performers. I never understood why, why Deborah left. Did you, did anybody, I mean, it was kind of odd that he would send her out and send her back. It didn't make uh, any sense to me. No, it made no sense at all. Uh, but, uh, again, I go back to this. Deborah is so beautiful. And of course she's a good friend of mine. Why didn't we take when she came back out, cut away shots of her? Vince no. would have played it up. No, for sure. It feels like a lot of this though, show production wise, you know, a lot of stuff from this era, WCW though, just could have been flat done better. And sure. if this was in the WWF, like you're saying, they certainly would have gotten those shots from a fan perspective who wasn't familiar with the Fargo strut and the history of that. Yeah. The fact that Jarrett is portraying himself as a bit of a horseman ally and doing a strut that some would say is similar to Ric Flair and using yeah. the figure four. Does this not feel like a modern day buddy Landale type situation? Yes, it did. And I think we even touched on that about his, uh, affection or his, uh, how much he in, liked Ric Flair. So we tried to put that over, but, uh, Isn't in reality, he probably pulled it off better than anybody else. But isn't that always like a recipe for disaster? It feels like a kiss of death for a character. If your character is that you look up to another. Yeah, but still, you know, Jeff Jarrett was a pretty good performer. Oh, phenomenal. I'm just saying, I wonder. Yeah. And obviously, you know, he would go on to much greater success after he would leave and come back and he didn't do this nearly to this level. Um, when did some of the problems start to exist between Deborah McMichael and Mongo? Obviously we don't want to get in anybody's personal business, but is this around that time or when did that start to, yeah, it, it was around this time. Uh, you know, uh, Mongo was a, a legit badass, Sure. And a pretty hard partier. Uh, and when you, when you get your wife involved in the business, that's another recipe for disaster. Sure. So that's kind of when it all started as well. I thought it was kind of interesting and we even brought it up in the match that, you know, how crazy is this, that he's going to be facing the U S champion with his wife, the U S champion's wife in his corner. So I thought it was a pretty neat little story. No, it is a good story, but it's, it's weird how, you know, art imitates life sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and I know those guys would get divorced in 98, I believe. And so here we are in the fall of 97. So it feels like this could have been uncomfortable. Do you remember there being any sort of weirdness for the boys in the back, uh, or, or any sort of subsequent weirdness from this kind of being on camera and maybe they're having problems in real life, but they're both in the locker room. Was any of that an issue that you recall? No, they were in different locker rooms. Uh, so, uh, and they were separated pretty much as far as, uh, what they were doing. You know, she was. Uh, she was in the women's section of the backstage area that I frequented a lot. Sure. Uh, and would go back and talk to her and, uh, talk to some of the ladies and hang out and do their hair, you know. stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so, but, uh, yeah, there was always weirdness. There, there was weirdness with that. There was weirdness with, with, uh, you know, Kevin Sullivan and Nancy and Benoit and all of that stuff. It just, uh, 
And of course, then there was weirdness with Diamond Dallas Page and Buff Bagwell and Kimberly, and it, it, it never was a good recipe. Never. Ne- there was there was no there would have been no way in the world that I would have ever brought Lois backstage to a wrestling event for crying out loud. What are we thinking? I don't know. Yeah, it seems like it's page one of the book of bad ideas. Like if yes, you, uh-huh. if you want to stay married, don't get your wife around the business. No, not at all. You know, that's one of the things we should mention about Arn. You know, I know we started with a lot of Arn stories and stuff, but Arn is yeah. a little bit of an anomaly in the business. He lives in the same town he has in the same house, I believe, for like 30 years. He's been married to the same woman, and he's worked pretty consistently without a break since he got in. So it is a little bit of an anomaly to be in the same house, in the same town, with the same wife, in the same line of work with seemingly no gaps the entire, yeah. you know, for more than 30 years. Uh, and you know, obviously time passes, but it's a testament to Arn that he's had this yeah. sort of staying power in his real life and just all around. Yeah. And, and I agree. And he, and here's one of the reasons that Arn and Aaron have stayed married for so long, because it's the same reason that Lois and I have stayed married for so long. Uh, Arn Anderson would say, and he told me this one time, uh, when we had the twins, he said, five kids. He said, you're married for life. You're married for life. But that's a joke. The reality is that Arn and Aaron have worked at it. And Lois and I worked at it. We found time for our marriage. We wanted to make it work. And when you wanted to make it work more times than not, you do. And that's just my personal feeling on that. Um, are we going to tell the Arn Anderson water Buffalo story? Uh, I don't remember like Jim Cornette remembers it. So there's a famous story with, um, might as well tell it now. Jim Cornette tells a story of back in the good old Jim Crockett days, you could just pull right up at the airfield and get out of your car and get on to the Crockett's private plane and just take right off. You didn't have to go through the airport. You didn't have to go through TSA. This is pre nine 11. So things were a little different. Well, allegedly you believe the Jim Cornette version of the story, um, the car pulls up, it's a station wagon. It's a litter of the Shivani, uh, children, right. and they're all inside the car and the plane is off. They're all just seated, kind of waiting. And supposedly the car pulls up and you just hear the normal engine. But then when the car doors open, it is the loudest, most zoo like raucous you've ever heard. Just crazy, abundant noise. Yeah. And then the door shuts. And it's complete silence again. Right. And that is when Shivani's getting out of the car and then coming onto the plane and then Lois and the litter uh, pull away. Allegedly, you climb the stairs, turn to get onto the plane. Arn Anderson locks eyes and says, Tony, go ahead. You You apparently have enough coming you to shampoo a buffalo. I don't know why. But that has always been one of my very favorite Arn Anderson yeah, my, stories. Mine too. Uh, Arn Anderson also announced here, and, and I just said, you never let Lois backstage. But uh, when Chris was born, when Chris and you met Chris, when he was uh, he was born in 1985. About by that time, uh, when when Arn Anderson's famous uh, "Enough Come In You to Shampoo a Buffalo" line came out, uh, we had uh, two infants. A kid, five years old, one, four, one, three. So that's how nuts our life was. Okay. Nuts. Uh, and Lois came to Jim Crockett promotions one day. She had gone to the doctor and she came in the backstage area where we were doing the interviews 
And I saw her walk in and I saw her whisper to Arn. And so I was doing the, the interviews, the local interviews. And as I'm, uh, getting ready to do an interview, Arn Anderson says, cut, hut, hold it. I got something to announce to everybody. Our fat ass, dumpy little redneck announcer from Virginia is getting ready to have another baby. And that's how I found out that Chris was, Lois was pregnant with Chris. And he said, don't you know how to keep the thing in your pants? And all the guys broke up and Lois left. So that's how I found out with that. Uh, but yeah, he had some great lines. Boy, the, the Arn Anderson stories are the best. No, they are for sure. Yeah. And I got uh, a Klondike Bill story too, that people have been wanting to hear. Let's do it. Wait, well, did Klondike Bill help put up the cage or games? Yeah, he was part of that. Okay. We'll, we'll get to it in just a minute. Let's go to the next match right. on the card. Wrath and Mortis took on Ming and the Barbarian and Wrath and Mortis get the win here. Believe it or not, they go about 12 and a half minutes. Meltzer wrote the crowd pretty much died for this match. Lone yeah. highlight was Mortis getting on Wrath's shoulders and superplexing Barbarian off the top rope. Finish saw Ming get the Tongan death grip on both James Vandenberg and Mortis, but from behind Wrath would hit the death penalty for the win. It got a star and a quarter. Uh, Tony, what's your favorite Wrath match? <laughs> I don't know what my favorite Wrath match is, but. He was a good performer. I, I think uh, one and a quarter stars is is unkind for this match. I thought that they worked a pretty good match for those guys. I think I, that I think that Dave has an affinity for Ming and certainly Mortis, but I don't think Dave is high on Wrath or Barbarian. I could okay. be I could be wrong. Right, he's probably right. I look, Mortis is Chris Canyon, one of the great performers. I think in a short span of all time. Wow, that's a hot take. But you know what? As far as in-ring work, the dude was awesome. I was a big was fan. was awesome. Awesome. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah, tragedy. He's a real tragedy. When I left the business, uh, I went to his house, with, and there were a bunch of guys there, and we watched uh, the uh, WrestleMania that, uh, that following April at his house, when he lived in Marietta at that time. Uh, so uh, Mortis was tremendous. I thought it was a good match. I liked always liked James Vandenberg as a as a heel ref, uh, as a heel manager. I don't know when we'll talk about him again, but he is one of the more interesting men in the history of wrestling. And I think, you know, time has kind of passed him by as far as being a focal point of an interesting character. But yeah, I, I've only met him a couple of times. But I feel like if you just followed him around, he could be like the new Dozeki's guy. He seems like one of the most interesting men in the world. Yeah, and, and this uh, the tongue and death grip on him. He sold it very, very well. And I thought for that match and, uh, right. The fans kind of set on their hands. It ended up being a pretty decent finish to that. So, well, uh, the next match, uh, which we talked about a little earlier that you called essentially a squash match, the giant pin Scott Norton here after five and a half minutes after a choke slam, uh, Norton had control most of the match using his power to throw the giant around. But then the giant makes a comeback doing the nip up. Uh, or kip up, depending on how you pronounce that. A drop mm. kick and a finisher with the choke slam. Uh, Meltzer would write, not bad for what it was, but I thought it was pretty cool. A few things about this stand out to me. One, what phenomenal shape the giant was in here. Uh, two, how, how much his entrance stands out when there's no music. In a yes. sea of big entrance music, uh, his is unique when there's nothing. It goes to show you that sometimes less is more. 
uh, his, his simple little raising the hand to, to symbol the choke slam was over the crowd reacted to it. Uh, and then of course, as we talked about, you know, he does this kip up and then he does a drop kick, two things that you don't expect to see from a guy, his size. And a lot of people in wrestling would say, big men don't do that. Be a giant. But the idea that he could do it is what made it so special to me. I thought this was a really fun match. Uh, a star in a quarter. I mean, I guess people want to be critical because there wasn't hurricane runners or crazy yeah, you know, right. r- false finishes, but it was a fun match for what it was. And I thought it told a really good story that the giant, while there may be, you know, a lot of people taking L's on the WCW side in this fight against the NWO, the giant is still kind of the ace in the hole. No question. And there's also a part of this that needs to be, uh, mentioned too, the job that Scott Norton did for him. Oh, phenomenal. Yeah. And now if you go back and look at that match, I know this happened and I saw it again when Scott took the choke slam and the giant covered him, the giant put his head down on Scott's chest and thanked him for the job he just did. And for taking that bump, he was talking to him at that time, Scott, uh, it was, it was a squash match in a pay-per-view, but it was a damn good one. No, I, and it, it helped put the giant over. I thought it was really good for what it was, as you said. And I thought, you know, Scott, Scott really did a good job of putting him over as the giant and considering the height he got on the choke slam. I mean, you can't do that without some help from Scott Norton. Cause he's a man and a half. So, right. Uh, it was fun for what it was. Uh, next up, we've got Lex Luger tagging with diamond Dallas page, and they would actually beat Scott Hall and Randy Savage. They go about 10 minutes in a no DQ match. Um, eventually we get uh, a situation where Scott Hall decks, the referee, Mark Curtis, and then Mickey J comes out and Hall stomps on his head. So this brings Larry Zabisco out of the broadcast booth. And then of course, Zabisco and Hall have heat as they've been yelling at each other as Zabisco has been at the commentary booth for weeks now. And this has been kind of going on on nitro. Zabisco winds up shoving Hall who then falls over Luger and Zabisco does a bit of a fast count for the pin and Meltzer would give it two stars. There's been lots of talk about this, but allegedly Scott Hall wanted to do this for Zabisco because of his early days in the AWA and feeling like when he was kind of young and new to the business and green, Zabisco tried to, you know, make him look good by going to a time limit draw when Zabisco was at a much higher spot on the card than Scott Hall. Do you remember there being any sort of conversation about this wanting to be something that Hall wanted to do to kind of repay the favor for that? I remember that conversation and it didn't surprise me because Larry was always a professional. Absolutely. One of the, one of the great professionals and, uh, you know, Scott being a a shit disturber, you know, I knew, listen, I knew Scott Hall back uh, from like 1982 when he was a member of the grounds crew at Crockett park. Uh, so he really, really wanted to get in the business. And, uh, I remember this, this being a discussion, man, isn't that something when you think about it, working on the grounds crew to where he would become, yeah. One of the great stars. Uh, oh, absolutely. Next up, here we are. It's the main event. It's war games. Uh, you probably already know the story. It's Marcus Alexander Bagwell, Buff Bagwell, teaming with Kevin Nash, Six, and Conan, and they would beat the team of the Four Horsemen, which was Ric Flair, Chris Benoit, Steve McMichael, and a seemingly injured Kurt Henning. And Kurt yeah. would be 
and, and we've talked about this before, but just briefly give everybody your opinion on the war games match. This one or the, the concept, in general. the concept of the match. Okay. It's like I said earlier, I never liked the concept of a war games match. And I liked it a lot less when we could not get blood to me, the big pop in wrestling is one, two, three, he wins it. Right. You weren't going to get that in war games because it was surrender or submission. And once all 10 guys in the first war games got into the ring, it was a lot of crazy things going on. And how would you, it just, to me, it was a popcorn fart to have some guy give up after that. So I never liked it in the, in the beginning. And I certainly didn't like this one because we couldn't bleed. And the fact that we end up now with normally, we usually had five guys on each side. Am I right about that? Yep. Four horsemen and JJ in the first one. Remember that five guys. Yep. Yep. And now we had four guys and now we only had three. So to me, two rings, the big cage that was not going to help matters out because you couldn't bleed, uh, in the storyline. Uh, and you only had uh, seven guys to me was too much ring and too much cage for two little performers. Well, let's talk about the match itself. Uh, the storyline here is that, um, Kurt is the baby face. Who's just taken Arn Anderson's spot in the four horsemen, but he's been attacked by the NWO. And of course, wouldn't you know it? The heels win the coin toss. So they get the two on one advantage to start. And eventually they're all in there and Kurt Henning comes out and he's got his arm in a sling. And even though he's hurt, he still wants to make a go of it. Um, Meltzer would write, this really wasn't much of a match except for a strong performance by Benoit and some great bumps early by six. By the way, the match goes to 19 and a half minutes. Mm. It started with Benoit versus Bagwell, who really didn't do a lot in the first big show main event of his career. Conan was in next, followed by McMichael. By this point, the match was pretty good. Six came in and began saving the match with some really great bumps. At this point, Henning came out with his arm in a sling to the horseman corner. Flair came in to the expected big pop, followed by Nash, who destroyed everyone. The crowd chanted for Sting. Henning's dramatic against all odds entrance got no crowd pop at all, and he immediately took the sling off and gave the NWO members handcuffs to put on Benoit and McMichael. They all destroyed Flair. Every time they asked Benoit or McMichael to quit, they'd say no. Finally, they put Flair's head to where they would begin to destroy it with the cage, and McMichael said that was enough. Henning still slammed the door on Flair's head. This was all an angle to cover for Flair having some cosmetic surgery, either a facelift or an eye lift, and taking about two months off. The fact that this had been kept from everyone and how the timing, the card, and everything else worked out at the end of the show that was so far as the heat from the parody, while there was some legitimate heat, certainly from the NWO side, there is a ton of heat on Flair right now. It sure worked out well for the storyline in the end, didn't it? Two and a half stars. So I want to talk about this because the match really isn't that bad. Um, right. you know, for what it is, it does feel a little bit B team because you have guys who aren't normally in the main event in the main event. And by that, I mean, Benoit and Mongo, but also on the other side, Bagwell six and Conan had not been in main events up to this point. And I realize, well, they've got to get there eventually. I understand, but this is also historically the big blow off pay-per-view for WCW. In another era, and certainly it was another era, the War Games was a really, really big deal. And, yep. here, and here they're doing it in the Carolinas. This ought to be huge. Now, Flair has been super critical of this finish and saying, 
oh, they killed the town. They killed the horseman. And, and Kevin Nash takes the mic afterwards and says the death of the horseman right here in their own backyard. And you, you sell it on air and say something like, oh gosh, I hope that's not true or something like that. Yeah. So my question, I guess is I don't understand the logic and I'm struggling with this because if they're really upset that they didn't get to do the run in to save this Arn Anderson four horseman parody, why would flair then, and he, and he's been critical of this, even to this day saying, oh, this killed the town. Flair knows he's going to take two months off for this surgery. And you guys actually open nitro the next night with no audio. And it's just footage of flair being marked up, prepared for surgery the very next morning. And it was from that morning when he was getting surgery done. And then you at the desk can't continue and say, you can't do the show because you're only here in the business because Ric Flair saw something in you when you were calling minor league baseball 13 years prior, and you're very emotional about your friend and you walk off the set. I I guess what I don't understand is how can Flair or anybody on the horseman side be critical of this angle if they know the payoff is going to result in Flair getting squashed with his head in the cage because he's taking two months off. I don't have an answer for that. I, I, I saw this as a, a half-assed decent match with a finish that was to further the angle of the NWO. I didn't see it as killing the horseman or I didn't see it as killing off flair or killing off the Carolinas. I saw it as just an extension of the NWO. We had a bunch of dickheads as we tried to portray and moving forward with that. That's what I saw. And as a result, I thought the nature boy did a pretty good job for them. If you can call what he did being a job, because to me, the fact that these guys, and of course there's Conan who can't, for some reason, cannot hook a, uh, a, uh, handcuff on somebody, but the, uh, <laughs> I kept saying, Jesus, click it, just click it. He's, hook he's, him up. he's used to being cuffed, not actually cuffing anyone. <laughs> okay. That came from a Conrad Thompson. It's a fucking joke. Calm down. <laughs> no, no, I, I know it's a fucking joke. I love jokes. I tell jokes all the time. Totally. I'm going to. I'm going to tell a lot of jokes in Dallas on July 9th. Roll title. That's now. Okay. So, uh, but I thought the visual of all those guys hammering Ric Flair, doing things to Ric Flair while the other guys were handcuffed was a pretty damn good visual for heat. Yeah. I didn't see anything wrong with it. You know, the, 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 the next thing to discuss of course is there's no payoff. So this makes a lot of sense as far as booking for heat, but there's got to be this triumphant, now Flair gets the horsemen together, rallies them, and they finally get their revenge on these dastardly NWO members. But that right. never that never happened. Yeah. I can't answer to that. Things change. Booking committees change. People change. Opinions change. Uh, the, the, the fans throughout the match are chanting, we want Sting. We want right. Sting. Do you think the absence of him hurt it pretty bad here? Hurt it a lot. If nothing else, Sting should have made some, I, yeah, that was, that was, I mean, it was, you, you try to book a pay-per-view based on what you think the fans are going to want to see. And it was pretty apparent the fans wanted to see Sting and we missed the boat on that. What was the mood in the crowd? You know, that they can't, a lot of them, 
you know, even though we're saying this is horseman country, let's be, let's not get it twisted here. The damn NWO is over like nobody's business. Yeah. But so, there was a lot of heat. Yeah. That's that was my question is, yeah. you know, was it, was it somber? I mean, were, were people upset? Were people mad at the promotion? Uh, what was the, what was the mood in the building with the fans that night? Well, it's hard to tell sometimes if anger is anger at the heels for the heat or anger at the promotion. I, we go back to a couple of uh, weeks ago on this, sh- on our podcast here, when I, when, uh, they stopped the match in Baltimore because Luger bled, Great they were mad at the m- promotion. Yeah. Yeah. This, I kind of thought it, it, and if you watch this event, you'll know that there's, there's a bunch of guys in the front row of ringside who are kind of off to the side, who are like, you know, are getting with it and everything and are, are trying to be irreverent and funny and doing some funny things, mugging towards the camera. But when this all went down, they were legitimately pissed off because they were flare guys. Right. And I don't think they were pissed off with the promotion more than they were pissed off at now the NWO for what they did to the horsemen. I mean, so I think there was legitimate heat. Yeah. It's one of those deals where, you know, this could have been the beginning of something you know, that would have been awesome as far as the payoff goes, if you're a horseman fan, but we don't get it. And our next big, great horseman moment wouldn't be until September of the next year when flair made his return. Um, but what I want to talk about is this cage because yeah. the finish here and them slamming the door on flair's head, right. Um, really came off really well. And, yeah, it did. and I, when I watched this back, knowing what I know now, I couldn't help, but think, I bet Klondike Bill built that. I'm sure Klondike had something to do with it because he built most of the stuff. You know, I talked, I mentioned that, uh, that Scott Hall and Danny Spivey had worked on the, uh, Crockett park, uh, grounds crew and they work with two ton George Harris and the head groundskeeper Klondike bill. Uh, and Klondike bill became, uh, was loved by everybody. There is, and we've got to find this. There is a WCW Monday nitro where Eric Bischoff, it's on YouTube. I know it's on exactly. YouTube. Yeah, you okay. Can go, you, go ahead and describe it, but this is available on YouTube right now. Yeah, and he uh, he ends up working for Klondike Bill that day, uh, which is to me just kind of. But but Klondike was, as we have established on this program, quite a character, and he would always hit me with this reoccurring theme that happened to him apparently early in his life when he was wrestling, I guess up in Canada, uh, and Klondike would always, and, and I, I know Klondike's grandson, Christopher is listening. Christopher, I'm sorry about this. This was your granddad. And this is the way we loved him. Klondike, we used to always rub that scraggly old gray beard of his. And he would say, Tony, he said, you know what to me would be the greatest thing that I could have happened to me. Oh gosh. <laughs> and I would, yeah, like that in my mind, I would go, Oh God. He said, I would like to get underneath a coffee table, a oh, glass coffee no, table. No. Oh yeah. No. I like to get under a glass coffee table and have a girl just straddle that coffee table and shit and piss all over the table so I could see it. And uh, there would be a stunned silence on my part to where I say, bullshit, that's happened to you, hasn't it? And he said, no, I said, bullshit, it's happened to you. You've had a, a, a one or two women do that. And he would smile and that would be it. But he would hit me with that periodically through the years. Tony, rub that beard. You know what I'd like to see? Just a girl. I would just go underneath that table and look up and see her just 
<laughs> Tony. <laughs> oh God, that guy was that guy was incredible. I can't believe of all That's the, what, of all the yeah. things. Yeah. I just it look. You, that would have to have happened to you for you to come up with it. You can't just come up with that in your sick mind, can you? No, it's a thing, actually. It um, is? Yeah. Oh, it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Klondike loved it. And Klondike loved it back in the early 80s. So maybe he was the forerunner of this. I, I feel like Klondike Bill deserves a lot of credit for UrbanDictionary.com. Yeah, he could. He absolutely could. So Klondike Bill was really fond of the glass bottom boat rides. And if I were a betting man, I would say within the next two calendar weeks, we will have Klondike Bill glass bottom boat ride tours Mm -hmm. as a shirt that's available at prowrestlingtees.com forward slash WHW. And if you happen to cruise over there right now, you're going to see, and I'm not even sure that you've seen these. Have you seen all the new shirts over at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW, Tony? Yes, I have. Our, our good buddy from out of Halifax, Matt McGrath, who I just absolutely love, uh, doing a great job he's, designing he's got, these shirts for us. He, he is so talented. He's got a shirt that that is safe to wear around the house now. It's Tony Schiavone, We're Out of Time, established That's- 1957. It's got the big gold belt in the background. You've also got, in honor of... Ming being a ninja, the old commentary ninja in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles font, maybe my favorite shirt in honor of the great Tom Zink, the hot tag t-shirt <laughs> in honor of Tom Zink. It's a little ode to Krispy Kreme. Of course, you can just be out front with your business and say, I'm a Tom Zink guy. Grab your button on a fur coat t-shirt. Maybe you're a big fan of Colonel Parker's Jump Rope Academy that was established in 1951. But in honor of the great Klondike Bill. It's not the Sesame Street shirt. It's the Klondike Street shirt. And it's not the Cookie Monster. It's the Panty Monster. Go pick it up. ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And when you pick up one of these shirts, not only will you embarrass your entire family, but you'll also get a call from Tony Schiavone. Do I have that right? You have that right. I do need to say this, that I'm behind on my calls. I apologize for that. You know what happened uh, this past week? Uh, Pro Wrestling Tees did a sale, a customer appreciation sale, and I put it on Twitter. And within 20 minutes, I we had sold like 20 shirts. So all of a sudden, it went, yikes, I'm way behind. I apologize that. Enjoy talking to a lot of uh, of, of the people out there. And uh, and uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying this, Conrad. I, I know I've mentioned this the last couple of years. I'm really enjoying this. And uh, thanks to the people at Pro Wrestling Tees. And thanks to uh, the talented Matt McGrath out of Nova Scotia. Well, and we also want to go ahead and thank uh, Matt Kuhn because right at the end of this show, stay tuned. We've still got the poll for next week to discuss. But at the end of that, we've got a very special treat. It's Matt Kuhn. He put together something special uh, for Dave Meltzer and the little rant that we had last week here with Tony Schiavone not being too kind to Mr. Meltzer. So my apologies in advance. Uh, 20 year subscriber to the Observer. Uh, Dave gets my money every single year. Tony, not so much. So Tony gives him the business. Stay tuned for that. Now, you can go ahead and be a part of our business. Just cruise on over and vote in our poll. It's up right now. Uh, and we're talking all things 1998. As a reminder, we're doing 98 this week, 99 the week to follow, 2000, then 2001. 
June 19th, though, what are we covering, Tony Schiavone? June 19th, we are covering the Four Horsemen. And we are going to cover the Four Horsemen because I was there for the inception and I was there for the glory years. And I guess I was there in Winston-Salem that night when we had uh, the end of the Four Horsemen, as, as Kevin Nash said. So mark your calendars, tell your friends, June 19th, the Four Horsemen are here. And don't forget to go ahead and enter to win. Win it before you can buy it, actually. The brand new Four Horsemen book brought to us by our friends over at the Mid-Atlantic Gateway. Dick Bourne is a idiot savant about all things mid-atlantic wrestling he's like the rain man of jim crockett promotions this book is going to be awesome uh, and you can win it before you can buy it just go like us and then share the post at facebook.com forward slash whw monday but the poll is on twitter it's on twitter at whw monday and it's up right now it's 1998 the first show on the poll sold out 1998 uh, we've got an eight-man luchador match to get started chris benoit and raven jericho and mysterio Booker T and Rick Martell, Larry Zabisco with Dusty Rhodes taking on Scott Hall with Louis Piccoli, Ray Trailer and the Steiner Brothers taking on Conan, Scott Norton and Buff Bagwell, Kevin Nash with Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff taking on The Giant, and then the first time on WCW Pay-Per-View, Bret Hart versus Ric Flair, and in our last match on the card, Lex Luger and Randy Savage. What do you remember most about Sold Out 1998 from Dayton, Ohio, Tony? Number one, you got to remember. You got to remember, an eight-man luchador means no one's going to sell shit. That's <laughs> true. Are, are they? No, no, of course not. But they did sell a lot of pay-per-views that day, and they sold even more and set an all-time pay-per-view record for the company at Bash at the Beach, 1998. One of the biggest cards in WCW history. It started with Raven and Saturn in a Raven's Rules match. Then we had Juventu Guerrero and Kidman, Stevie Ray and Chavo Guerrero Jr. in a hair versus hair match. We had Eddie Guerrero versus Chavo. We also had Conan taking on Disco Inferno, the Giant taking on Kevin Green, Rey Mysterio working in a no DQ match for the Cruiserweight title against the champion Chris Jericho. Booker T would be defending his television title against Bret Hart. Goldberg, the world heavyweight champion, would defend his newly crowned title against Kurt Henning. He had just won the belt that prior Monday on Nitro. Six days later, here he is defending it against Kurt. But in the main event, Hollywood Hogan and Dennis Rodman would tag to take on Diamond Dallas Page and Carl Malone. One of the biggest shows in WCW history it happened in San Diego, July 1998, Bash at the Beach. What might we talk about on Bash 98, Tony? We're going to talk about, if we talk about that one, about the uh, the use of NWA stars and the crossover that WCW was getting at that time. Thanks a lot, in, in part to Hogan. Uh, talk about, you know, we've already talked about Goldberg, but that's, of course, uh, you know, right after he won the title. So that helped us get the pop as well. But also there's a there's another match on there that, that I think is, uh, is probably overlooked, and that's Booker T against Bret Hart. Yeah. You know, Booker T became a great singles wrestler and obviously we know that even further down the road so it really is kind of the beginning of his major push that you would see right. for a few years uh also 1998 august we would have another sturgis motorcycle rally from sturgis south dakota road wild 1998 you know what's coming here folks but we start with Ming and barbarian then we've got the public enemy taking on the dancing fools uh, that's Disco Inferno and Alex Wright. Mm. Uh, Saturn would take on Raven and Canyon in a Raven's Rules three-way match. Rey Mysterio and Psychosis would battle for the number one contendership for the Cruiserweight title. 
We also had Stevie Ray defending his world television title against Chavo Guerrero Jr. That's right. Stevie Ray was TV champ. Steve McMichael would take on Brian Adams. Hooventude would challenge Chris Jericho for the cruiserweight title. And this time Dean Malenko was the special guest referee. This stuff in 1998 with Chris Jericho is fabulous. Next up on the card though, it's time for us to talk about Goldberg. Uh, he is in a battle Royal here against several guys. Uh, the biggest foe in the match though, is the giant, but the real draw here, the main event diamond Dallas page and Jay Leno take on Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff. Uh, this got lots of headlines, but was wow. Criticized by wrestling folks last, but certainly not least 1998 Halloween havoc. Uh, this is the show where they went off the air without meaning to, they didn't actually get to see the finish for the main event. Uh, that's probably what it's most famous for Goldberg and diamond Dallas page being cut short in the main event for the world title, but the match right before that. Wow. We have to bring back our commentary gimmick for this one. It's Hollywood Hogan and the ultimate warrior in a singles match. We've also got Bret Hart and sting a match. That was a dream bout just a few years before Scott Hall would take on Kevin Nash. Rick would take on Scott Steiner. That's right. The Steiner brothers against each other. Uh, Billy Kidman would, uh, battle disco Inferno. Perry Saturn would take on Lodi, Alex, Wright And fit Finley disco and Hooventude, wrath and Ming. And then in the opening match, Chris Jericho and Raven, what a stacked card. Halloween havoc, 1998. It seems like this is kind of the, the tale of 98 because you've got some really good stuff like bash at the beach, 98 and what great business it did. And then you've got Halloween havoc, 98. With all this opportunity, Rick versus Scott, uh, Hall versus Nash, Brett versus Sting. And then the main event that everybody was really shocked by Goldberg DDP, nobody sees the damn finish for. Yeah. But all I think about really, even with that silliness is the horrible match that Hogan had with the warrior. Don't you? Yeah. Oh, one of the worst matches ever. And, and what, uh, and what kind of blew me away about that night is that I, was my last event with the WWE in 1990 was WrestleMania six where Hogan and warrior worked a hell of a match for those two. Pat Patterson put that match together and it was a great match. And now fast forward to 1998 where it was one of the shittiest matches ever. Yeah. Where is Pat Patterson? When you need him, he is nowhere right. to be found. So there you go. 1998 is next on our poll. We encourage you to go vote right now at WHW Monday on Twitter. Uh, to recap again, we've got sold out. Uh, we've also got bash at the beach road, wild and Halloween havoc 1998, quite a fun year. And don't forget, mark your calendars, June 19th. It's the four horsemen episode. If you haven't already cruise on over to facebook.com forward slash WHW Monday, go ahead and like that page and share that post about this brand new four horsemen book. And somebody is going to win a copy before you can buy it. Uh, Tony, right before we go ahead and go to Matt Coons magical remix of your rant from last week against Dave Meltzer. I can't help but notice it's about that time. It's about that time. Conrad Thompson. Thank you very much. Good talking to you all the way from Huntsville, Alabama in the Von Braun civic center where it's war games and in the ring is the nature boy, Ric Flair. They have just decapitated him. His head with that gigantic nose is laying on the floor. Deborah McMichael, call. Here comes Deborah, and behind her, it's Klondike. Klondike Bill has a coffee table with a glass top on it. Oh my God! We are out of time on WCW's 
What Happened When Monday? Tune in next week! You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. Fuck Dave Meltzer. Because I would never call dramatic. Just stick my nose up his ass. Fuck Dave Meltzer. And I will step out and you can do the commentary. Fuck Dave Meltzer. Real jackoff named Steve Beverly. I don't even know what happened, happened to him. Fuck Dave Meltzer. Because I didn't do enough of the uh, Japanese style wrestling that Dave Meltzer whacks off to. Maybe we should have had in the middle of that match Dave Meltzer. Dean Malenko and Psychosis do a run-in and do a couple of fucking holes in the middle while all six of them looked on the outside and me stumbled over not being able to call the match that Dave Meltzer would have wanted for fucking Japan. How about that? Maybe we should have done that and that would have helped the match. Or maybe we would have Malenko and Psychosis wait until... Uh, fucking Ultimo, Ultimate Dragon came running in with Rey Mysterio without the mask so we can see him looking <laughs> handsome and they do a couple of fucking high spots then fucking leave then Meltzer could jack off for a couple of minutes and we could get back to the uh, six guys in the ring having their match which had a fucking good finish by the way Fuck Dave Meltzer <laughs>